What happens when the narrative rhythm of a television series is constructed to upset the expected, to confront the stereotypical, in fact, to go headlong into convention at such a speed that the convention breaks apart, enabling us to see it more clearly? It was the fast-paced rhythm, screwball comedy musicality, and overall artistry of the pilot episode of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, edited by Brian Cates and directed and written by Amy Sherman Palladino, that convinced picture editors Kate Sanford and Tim Strito to come on board as the full-time editors of the Emmy and Golden Globe award-winning series, now in its third season. Tim and I had a chance to watch this pilot before we met them and before we decided that we really wanted to come on and do it. And... One thing I noticed was the music, and specifically the music editing. There are just some fabulous little moments and beats where a piece of music will end on something rhythmic. And one of the things that I noticed right away was that that montage where Midge is walking out of her apartment and she goes to the butcher, and we're hearing, it's a wonderful day, like today. And her footsteps are in sync with the music. The doors opening are in sync with the music. And the last note of the song ends on the oven door opening. And the oven door opening becomes the last note of the song. And when I saw that and I heard it, I thought, okay, that's the kind of show that it is. I met with Kate and Tim in Kate's edit suite at Steiner Studios in Brooklyn, New York. In the hallways, there are colorful, oversized stills of Midge in various locations from the show decorating the walls, and it's symbolic of the fact that all the departments of the show take their cue from a kind of brightness and non-stop ambition of Midge Maisel. It's a tone that's caringly perfected through Kate and Tim's work as picture editors and through conversations with the showrunners, Amy Sherman Palladino and Dan Palladino. I think the pace of it, the look of the show, the bright colors, it all kind of comes from Midge, from her character. You know, she is a very positive person. She's someone who takes a lot of pride in being a good wife and a good mother. And this is her award-winning brisket. And, you know, she's supportive of her husband. And, and that characteristic of hers carries over even after the rug is pulled out from under her and after her husband leaves her. And she sort of embarks on this new career in the first two seasons. She's a very like hardworking, like positive person. And I think the the pace and the sort of brightness of the production design through the wardrobe reflects Midge in, in some way. And then she's a bit naive as well. Like I think she learns things along the way that maybe the, the world is different than she believes it is. And the pace of it, the, it, it's it's there in the writing. It's definitely there in the scripts. You can feel it. You know, a lot of it's right there on the page. It's a pacey, it's a pacey show. The signature pacing and use of music editing to develop the narrative is cultivated throughout the editorial process. Amy and Dan don't say to us explicitly in words, here is our project, they show us. They show us by shooting it and they show us by the music that mostly they choose or they come into our editing rooms and they have a whole bunch of iPods and a whole bunch of ideas and we try things out. So they they have a deep knowledge of music and understanding of what they want to do. I mean, I kind of think of it as a musical. It's not quite a musical, but I think that the songs function in certain ways like a musical does to help you understand and comment on character and continue that narrative further. So we don't have a lot of score, but the songs are score, and they also comment on it. And unlike most things I've worked on, the songs are allowed to say exactly what is going on and to explicitly tell you what the mood is. It's a wonderful day. Or, you know, if there's something sad, 
the music, it should add another layer and another color, but it's not necessarily in counterpoint to what's going on. It is in support of the moment. I tossed out names of 1940s screwball comedy directors, people like Preston Sturges, Howard Hawks, Ernest Lubitsch, George Kukar, asking if the fast-paced banter and challenge of traditional roles and marriages in their films was an influence on Mrs. Maisel. We don't necessarily have explicit conversations about His Girl Friday or, you know, screwball comedy, but I know that they love them. And I know that we're channeling that kind of energy. It's hard to get that rhythm perfect the first time you assemble a scene, but we're definitely putting it together faster than I guess I normally would since I come from drama. But I will say a great part of the enjoyment of watching the show is the rhythm. Once we get it right and the back and forth and the volley of dialogue, there's just so much pleasure in it. And that's what Amy and Dan are after. And like I think that is a, like one of the biggest reasons for them wanting to make the show in the first place is to communicate that kind of rhythm and style that is just a part and parcel of the show. And it's sort of like, if it's not right, you know, I'll see, you know, a flabby assembly or something that I put together and I'll take a, I'll take a step back and go, well, that's not it. That's not the show yet. And until you really pull it together, it doesn't feel like Mrs. Maisel. And then once you do, it starts to come together and you get that ping pong back and forth and it starts to feel good. And then you put music on it and then it really flows and it really sings. But rhythm also lives in the camera movement. In this case, long steadicam shots that often run for the entire length of the scene, and the challenge becomes how to manage the movement of the characters in counterpoint to the dialogue. I think the camera movement, it, it always feels very elegant, very, you know, we don't do handheld, we don't do anything that would feel like it was too agitated or, you know, it's not Paul Greengrass. It's like, you know, it's, 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 the, it's it, the whole thing is kind of yeah. this ballet of movement that is very elegant and classical and in nature. So I think I've never felt like we were moving too much. I think they're pretty well composed. Our DP, David Mullen, is amazing at, at building them. Our study cam operator, Jim McConkey. Jim McConkey, you know, is the best in, in the business. And, uh, and often there are these marvelously staged wonders that move through different environments and the blocking changes and everybody's still going at that kind of rapid fire. Uh, but then there are other, there are scenes that are where there are several shots that can kind of connect together. There, there's lots of magic that happens sort of. I, we often get them and we're like, ah, were they on a crane? And then they got off the crane. Like we're trying, we, we try and figure it out and then we'll, you know, we'll ask and, you know, kind of find out. Or if we're, if you're ever on set and you see them do it, it's, it's amazing. Right. Some one of those elements needs to be happening all the time, whether it's camera movement or dialogue or usually both in unison. I mean, Midge moving through B. Altman at the beginning of last season, there are sales girls in B. Altman who are modeling the clothes, who are sort of spinning around. And because Amy's a dancer, she used to be a dancer, you know, she has her own beautiful, flowing, graceful rhythm. Everybody needs to be moving all the time. And sometimes the background actors are dancers, actually, because she says, you know, regular people can't move that quickly and they can't move that gracefully. So even sometimes people who are featured crossing background players are hired and their dancers. So that was true in B. Altman. And I guess, you know, we had to be careful that the backward dolly of bringing Midge into the room and then cutting to somebody spinning around, you want to be able to see everything and you want it to flow seamlessly. And there is a choreographer who's working with Amy and Dan 
And even if there's just background movement and people need to be fluidly coordinated to be back and forth behind the principal actors, sometimes the choreographer will come and help with that. But then, yeah, there are staged dance performances like the telethon. And we had the, in the Catskills, we had the initial dance where Midge is running around and all the couples are dancing. There were kind of two dances in that sequence that were choreographed. Then there was the around the world end of the season show that they did. So there's, I feel like that mm-hmm. there's always some sort of, uh, there are many kind of dances that crop up, actual dances, apart from like what you're saying about like B. Altman, where just like the people moving through the place are dancers as well. Also, continuity has to be perfect. That is another really important part of the show. Amy gives everybody as much business to do as possible, whether it's picking up props and moving them around while they're moving from one part of the stage to another and talking at the same time, and all of that continuity has to be perfect. So we've got to keep our eye on all of that, as well as pick the best camera moves and performances and invisibly stitch them together. So it's it's quite a lot. She's very demanding and has an eagle eye. Yeah, it's always tricky when it's 1959, it's people are smoking, the, the women have numerous accessories that they're, you know, they have, they have purses, they have gloves, they come into a room, they take off their coat in a very graceful way. Like there's, there's a lot of management of personal business that, that has to match and, and work from like one cut to the other. I think Tim and I are just trying to make every moment play and every moment feel real and authentic and and grounded and true. Whatever moment is is playing, even if it's comedic, I want it to feel like there's some real truth to it. I wondered when you're working with such an A-team, where the unexpected challenges lie as editors. Kate and Tim explained how a break in the rhythm in a fast-paced show can be used for dramatic effect and highlight how Midge Maisel may be disrupting the social order as well as the rhythm of the show. You know, they want to go quickly. They want it to be fun and rhythmic, um, but really important things happen. So there are some scenes that are written to play longer. And I, 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 we talked to Brian about this also. In the pilot, it's going so quickly. And the moment when Joel says, I'm leaving you, was a really, I know that was a big moment in their conversation, in their editorial process. And, you know, Brian's done a lot of dramatic editing as well. And so as an editor, you know, I think naturally there's something very deep and important and heavy that's happening and you want to stop and you want to honor it with time. And, you know, I know Amy and Dan pushed for the for that moment in particular to go fast. And it was definitely a negotiation for, you know, to carve out just a little bit of time for that to land for Midge, that he's actually leaving. And I think that's true as the series went on. And I think, you know, we continue to negotiate over h- how many frames and seconds we're going to pause for drama before the dance continues. Yeah. I mean, I think that the rhythm sometimes gets thrown off kilter. Like one thing that often happens on the show is right before Midge is about to perform, something happens that throws her or during the performance, something throws her. So like she sees her father in the audience and that completely throws her off in the scene when she's in the Concord. And so then the rhythms change, right? The audience is sort of uncertain. So we've had to sort of figure out what are the rhythms of like the laughter of the audience. We're very particular about like how the audience is reacting and 
whether there are women who are reacting to something she's saying because they recognize it more than men, or men who are disgruntled at something she said. You know, we've, we've been very carefully calibrated those comedic performances, just in the sound design, but also just in the rhythm of how we're cutting to often be a little bit off kilter. So that's a challenge. That's probably the hardest thing mm-hmm. we do is like the, the stand-up stuff is, is tricky to, to pull off. How do you really make a dramatic moment in what is otherwise a comedy? And the show has some very real deep issues that, that come up and just the challenges a woman faces in the world. So we want to make sure that that stuff gets, you know, enough weight as well. Yeah, that Concord scene um, where Mitch sees her father was a, a, a really good example of, you know, kind of echoing a moment, the moment in the pilot where she realizes something dramatic has happened and shifted and how much time do you give that? And initially, you know, in the in the earlier cuts, there there was more time, there was more back and forth. She's stammering, she's looking at her father, cut back, cut back and forth. And it really turned into one cut back and forth. And then she has to gather herself up again because she is in the middle of a performance with a thousand people in the audience watching her. So even in that quiet moment where she's trying to figure out how to possibly go on, we have chair scraping, we have people coughing, like it's not... It, it, it can never come to a dead halt. You know, it's still, we still have to keep some sound and sort of feeling and even little vocalization going during such a pause. So Midge is, you know, going, um, yeah. um, um. And fi- so figuring out that little tiny moment, you know, took, took weeks. The show has garnered a wide audience, with 3.3 million people tuning in for the premiere of season two. I asked Kate and Tim how or why a show set in 1959 would resonate so strongly with a contemporary audience in a more modern era. I think a lot of the writing, particularly in her stand-up, when she really lets loose, it feels very contemporary, right? So like that whole rant she had in season one about Sophie Lennon, why do we always have to say we're sorry when we're not sorry? Why do we always have to say we're not hungry when we're hungry? You know, that whole, that felt like a very modern essay on, you know, the struggle that women continue to face, you know, just social pressure. And I think some of her stand-up routines, especially early on, are her attempt to work out how she feels about things too. So it's an opportunity when she finds herself on stage uh, in the jazz club, I think that's also episode 103, and she gets up there and she talks about what's in her purse, and she's got Dr. Spock, and what if I'm not meant to be a mother? What if we're not actually all, you know, all women not necessarily meant to be mothers? And she says the equipment comes pre-installed, but still, you know, and she's trying to figure out and sift and sort through her feelings there. And that is also a reflection of how our contemporary culture still expects women to stay at home and be attentive and have a relationship with their children that, society thinks that they should have. But if a man were to decide to go on the road and leave for six months or whatever, that really wouldn't be challenged. So I think we're, you know, we're definitely still in the midst of it. Um, It's our sort of projection of how a mother would be traumatized herself by leaving them. And that Midge is presenting a counter to that. And I really appreciate that as well. Mm -hmm. So how does an episode come together? Assuming everyone has a basic mastery of the technical aspects, what kind of conversations between the director and editor become essential in creating one of the most successful shows of the last two seasons? And when, exactly, do you have those conversations? 
with Dan and Amy, they just kind of come in as they're able. They, they are running a writer's room. They are scouting. They are a whirlwind of activity. They really are doing so much on the show. So a lot of times we'll get them like at the end of the day for a couple hours or for like an hour, like at lunch or something, like when they're doing stuff. And that's sort of how we build out. Sometimes they'll, there's a lot of back and forth of notes and, and emails and stuff. But uh, we usually get into like one or two like heavy sessions with them for their director's cut. And then it goes, it goes to the network. But they work, they like to work in the editing room. I mean, when they're in here, they're very sharp in the cutting room and it's a very like precise Yeah, they don't miss anything. Yeah, it's good. As I said, like they're, they're busy, they're running the show, they're answering lots of questions. The art department's down the hall, like Bill Groom's coming down here and like show them swatches of whatever. And then they have the writers, they're always writing, you know, early in the season, they're writing the entire season still. They're not distracted at all by, by that stuff. They're, they're just really like plugged in. And I think they just compartmentalize their time really well. Like they, they just know how to do it, um, which is great for us. Cause I feel like, I feel like when I have, I haven't been here, yeah. I've got their full attention and we're doing like really solid work. We don't restructure quite as much as we might on other shows. So I think they write pretty carefully and tightly. But we work on, you know, we'll, we'll take out lines. Uh, in the assembly, I'll assemble every single word with, yep. you know, perfect accuracy as scripted. And then they'll come in and then they'll make decisions about what they want to cut out. And sometimes just cutting out a few lines uh, or a couplet or something with a little back and forth kind of helps pull a scene together. So those are things we'll do together in the room. I won't necessarily, I, I might have an idea or Tim, Tim might have an idea and you'll put it aside. But when we present them with the cut, it'll be completely on book as scripted. So and then we'll there's always that. scenes that, that are the ones that you get hung up on and that take a while to kind of figure out. There's always something, you know, in every episode, there's something that, that takes some figuring out. Um, and they come in with music. They yep. come in with more music ideas. Um, we'll play some music. We'll play scripted music. We'll play a little bit of other music, but they sort of prefer at this point to see scenes dry without too much music so that they can kind of think about it and see if the drama's playing before they put in music that they didn't think of. And then they'll come in and we'll try dozens of songs mm -hmm. against picture. And then when we decide on a song, then we'll import it into the Avid, we'll put it in the scene, and then we'll start cutting based on the rhythm of that song as well. And then as, as, as they're, you know, they'll watch the entire assembly, they'll, they'll usually give us, you know, notes by email, we'll do a pass of notes, and then they'll come in and we'll go scene by scene by scene. Yeah. And then when we do that type of pass a couple of times, we'll usually sit back and watch it down, and then we'll go back in again. If there, like, there, there are some scenes in the episode I'm doing now uh, that Dan, Dan's coming in tomorrow. So, like, he, he gave me the first pass of notes, and I did those. And he gave me, like, two versions of an idea for, like, one scene that, that I'm going to kind of mock up and show. You know, there's some sort of, like, he wants to kind of see some options. But but they design things they so They design carefully. things very specifically, yeah. You know, I feel like there's when I'm watching... Yeah, I feel like when I'm watching their dailies, you know, um, there's a steady cam shot and that might lead your eye to something and then the coverage might start halfway into a scene, for example. So I think if you, you look at the line script, you watch the dailies, I think it's pretty clear for me where to start. And then we can do a lot of different versions and all of the details, all of the tweaking, all of the like infinitesimal rhythmic things that we do to make it the perfect Mrs. Maisel, mm -hmm. that takes, you know, days and days, 
but the initial approach, the architecture of a scene, I think it's, for me, it, and I think it, by, by this point, it's pretty clear mm-hmm. how, they, how they design it. It's, it's, it's really not like, you know, a guest director may come in and shoot more coverage because they didn't design the show. They don't have the authority necessarily um, to do it. Or in a drama, I mean, I don't think you always know exactly where you want to be when, but I get the sense from watching dailies that they do have an idea of where they want to be when. Yeah. So where where is the center? Where's the emotional center of the scene? Where are we going to be close for the heart of it? How do we get there? I think the footage is really talking to us. There are moments that are tricky performance-wise, and, and this is a good problem to have because the, the actors are so good. There was something I was cutting once with Susie where I just didn't want to cut away from her because she was just so funny. You know, other people were funny in the scene, but, you know, there, there are times like that where it's tricky because the actors are doing something that you just, like, love. And Susie, you know, has this <laughs> general demeanor of being put upon and sort of, like, aggravated by, you know, bullshit that, you know, that's really funny to me. So I, I like looking at Alex's performance and, and, like, kind of what she's doing from take to take. And so that, that can be a challenge, too. The one thing that isn't as clear, actually, I'll say, are Midge's stand-up scenes. I think there is more coverage for that type of scene than any other. Yeah, they shoot and those like they, you would shoot, you know, yeah. an actual stand-up comedian's <laughs> performance, you know, like if you were shooting a comedy special or something, right. like they kind of shoot those a little more. And usually three cameras yeah. for, are rolling on each take. Yeah. So you've got three angles for each performance in each setup. For the comedy yeah. performances, yeah. What's crazy about those is I don't feel like, you know, a lot of actors will sort of save the good stuff for their closer shots, but I, Rachel, no. I never feel that at all from her. Like in the wides, she's still... She's so good and she's so precise. And I would say usually, okay, there's one sort of hero take. Maybe I'm building, okay, like, you know, B take two. That's really, that she really nailed it there. But everything else is really close to it and it's so good that... It has, in a way, less to do with picking performances than kind of finding my way around how to tell the story of the stand-up. When do you want to be wide? When do you want to see the audience? And there are a lot of shots, too, which are, you know, one camera will be shooting, like, over her shoulder and including the audience in her performance and sometimes moving with her. So it becomes sort of a structural exercise it's a lot easier than it would be because Rachel is so consistent and so good yeah. that we could basically pick anything and she'd be great. And then if we keep working at it, then she's even greater, right? Yeah, I think it's hard for people to appreciate this who aren't editing. <laughs> but there's real work in building a performance in the cutting room. And some actors are just so, like, everything is it's just good. She's one of them. She's really, like pretty extraordinary. Yeah, she's amazing. I mean, we, we get into details for sure, but we're never having a problem trying to craft a performance or trying to find it because because yeah. they, they find it on set. They really do it. This interview took place about 6 p.m. as people were heading out. And as I was walking into Kate's edit suite, a young person was heading home and popped their head in to say goodnight. It made me wonder who else is directly connected with the editors in what seemed to be a hive of activity. So I asked them about the people that surround them in doing their work. It's basically our four-person crew. So Tim, myself, uh, Zana Bokar, and Andy Pang were our assistants. Annette Kudrak is our music editor. 
and she's fantastic. And Ron Bokar and sound team. Yeah. And then, you know, we're taken good care of by Matt Shapiro, who's our post-producer, and uh, Kristen Troyansky, who's post-supervisor, uh, Laura Habaker. We have a great staff. And, and you know, yeah, it's not that big. Uh, and, you know, Kate and I help each other out often, or our assistants will help us cut some stuff if we're kind of jammed up, or if we want to just kind of get them involved and give them some opportunities to cut some stuff. We also have a whole in-house VFX crew. Yes. So Leslie Robson Foster has been on since the beginning, and she and Parker Chiak is our VFX producer. Perry Frank is our VFX editor. And we have a bunch of like in-house artists. There's like, yeah, there's a real team for just for the VFX work. So that's really helpful because we get good temp VFX all the time. It's great. And we love being here because we're down the hall from the production office. We're down the hall from the art department. It's great. Dan and Amy love people to see stuff. They love sharing it with the crew, getting people excited. And so that's nice for us, too, because it makes us part of the larger group. And the stages are downstairs, too. I mean, we have, like, a standing stage that is always dressed and changing. But the, the Weissman apartment is down there. And then other things are built around it as needed. And then, you know, we've expanded. And we have a couple other stages, too, that we're using for interior work. And then they're on location around the city other times. But when they're here, that's really fun. I mean, I don't have that much time to go to set, but I can pop in and just kind of see it and say hi to them. You know, here we just kind of like open the door and yell down the hallway. You know, it's like, it's like, it's like we, we, everything is this and everyone's working on the same thing. And it's just like, yeah, it's cool. This episode was produced by me, Isabel Siderni. The Frame by Frame podcast series is presented by Post New York Alliance because it's how you finish that counts and is supported by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences Oral History Project, where you can find each episode in a newly created New York collection. We welcome your questions and comments. Write us at frame by frame, all one word, at postnewyork.org. Or find us on iTunes, search frame by frame, and we're the one with a big orange square, and leave a comment. We'd love to hear what you think. Stay tuned for upcoming episodes of Frame by Frame with Bob Heisenhart, Tom Fleischman, Rick Schnupp, and Chai Wasser-Hallway on their collaboration in creating the Oscar award-winning feature documentary, Free Solo. Paying your bills